Hello, welcome back to Flash Gordon Minute. I'm Eric Deutsch, and I'm flying solo on a rocket cycle for this one. In this latest bonus episode, I'm going to review Peter Wingard's album When Sex Leers Its Inquisitive Head, Song by Song. Listening to the show, you know that I am an unabashed Clytus fan, and one of the main reasons is Peter Wingard's amazing voice. We mentioned at some point that he had a spoken word album, and so as an end-of-show gift for myself, I bought it. Now, this album, which has music performed under Peter's interesting lyrics, was released in 1970, titled Peter Wingard. It was re-released in 1998 with the title When Sex Leers Its Inquisitive Head, and that is the version that I have. I'm not going to get too into the background of the album itself, because you can easily Google that, and I didn't read any reviews or retrospectives about it that might affect my reactions. I listened to it once when I got it. And I'm listening to each song a second time for this analysis, and I didn't really remember most of the songs from that first listen, so this is more like a gut reaction to the songs. It's, it's not even an analysis, really. And remember, I am not a musician. This is just a layperson's reaction. There are 16 songs on the album. Some of them are on YouTube if you want to pause the episode now and give them a listen. Okay, so song number one is called Come In. This clocks in at 2 minutes and 12 seconds. He wrote this one. And the song, and therefore obviously also the album, since this is the first song, starts with some wacky laugh that doesn't sound like him at all. There's an upbeat guitar and some drums that kick in. Uh, and then he starts singing something in French, and you hear him light a match. He says he's lighting a candle, and he wonders where to put it. And then he says, hello, come in, come in, come in. He asks if it was difficult to find. He takes the person's coat. Now, if you listen to this track... All I can think of is the old sketch, The Continental, from Saturday Night Live that Christopher Walken did a few times, where it's just this very upper, crusty, posh person who is attempting to seduce somebody. He talks about having fine champagne. He refers to the woman as his fine, wide-eyed doe. Uh, that, that's the vibe that I am getting here from this song. Then the person, whoever he's speaking to, there is some dialogue here, but you're only hearing what Peter Wingard is saying. And then there are pauses where you don't actually hear what the other person is saying. And this is another thing from pop culture that this is reminding me of. There's a Monty Python sketch on one of their audio CDs that's supposed to be you being able to take part in the audio recording of a book. And they have actors speaking and then this sort of like ah, 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 noise where you're supposed to say your part. At one point, he says uh, one of the words that I most love his voice for, which he does say in Flash Gordon, he says, yes, just love the way that he says that word. Then he starts asking the woman uh, what her perfume is. He wants to guess what her perfume is. Uh, he obviously knows what it is because he says, I'm always right. There's a cockiness to it, which perfectly fits both Clytus and uh, uh, Peter Wingard. Then he says, no, the lights haven't fused its candlelight. Uh, obviously, uh, the woman that he's attempting to seduce here, uh, a bit confused by why the lights are so low. He offers her a drink. He's already started drinking his champagne. She wants to sit down, but he tells her to sit closer to him. He says, here's to a pleasant evening and a few surprises. You comfortable? Now, where should we begin? So it's sort of like an intro to the entire album. It's not just the seduction of this woman that's coming into his home, but he's kicking off the album for us listeners saying, there's, there's some interesting stuff about to happen. And by now, some fast-paced horns have kicked in. Uh, the music itself is pure seduction music. I mean, this, this is definitely a song that is, he's seducing someone in the track, 
and the music itself is something if you took out all the lyrics, you played just the music, you could definitely put it on uh, to try to get some seduction going. So then we're going to the second song that's called You Wonder How These Things Began. This is a minute and 11 seconds, and it's based on a monologue from the Fantastics called You Wonder How These Things Begin. It's about a woman named April. We've got some strings, possibly a harp playing in the background here. Uh, sends an interesting line here, says, focus on the environment with your ears instead of your eyes. Uh, for example, the green breathing of the leaves. A nice little uh, uh, imagery going on there. He says, celebrate sensation and recall its secret place. If you can find something that's more double entendre than telling someone to celebrate sensation and to recall the secret place, I don't know what that could possibly be. It is meant to be thinking about the lyrics. It's meant to be about a hidden area with two people who are secluded somewhere. But just the way that he says it with that awesome Peter Wingard way, it just exudes sexual innuendo. So now the third song is the most well-known track on the album because it's by far the most controversial track. He wrote this. It is three minutes and 35 seconds. And the song is simply called Rape. It starts out with him saying the word rape in almost a dog-like growl about 10 times or so. And then these really powerful drums and a trumpet kick in with a very fast-paced guitar. Then we hear a woman screaming the word in a bunch of different ways. So this song is off to an incredibly insane start. Suddenly, he breaks in and he just says very nonchalantly, it's utterly amazing how many different kinds of rape there are. And then he proceeds to talk about it based on different countries. So he says Italian rape, and he spouts some Italian. Then he starts to say some horribly racist Japanese gibberish in a horribly racist fake accent and ends it uh, by saying uh, Japanese rape, of course. As in, of course, we should have known that that was Japanese that he was just doing there. Then he mentions American rape. Uh, he then repeats what he did with the Japanese gibberish. He has some horribly racist Chinese gibberish as well, mentioning Chinese rape. For France, <laughs> here's one for you. Women are more seedy, and rape is hardly ever necessary. This is what he's saying about French women. He mentions Germany. He goes then to Russia, where he says it's too cold for anything so bold. Then he goes into a line where he says, which makes the whole thing rather nasty, tasteless, and rather hasty. But as Jason King would say, it depends so much on what you fancy. Uh, now, Jason King is a character that he played on British television. I never watched the show. I can't really comment on that. But uh, yes, Jason King or Peter Wingard, whatever, rape indeed is rather nasty and tasteless. I think that's a bit of an understatement. Then we have the word rape chanted in background uh, of the music in various wacky ways. Honestly, I guess he's trying to make some kind of a point here. I don't really know that I care to try to figure it out. Uh, it, whatever it is, it just doesn't work. This is why. This is the most controversial track. And uh, let's uh, let's just move on from it. So the next song is called La Ronde de l'Amour, coming in at 2 minutes and 23 seconds, translated to English, that is The Love's Roundabout. This is from a movie called La Ronde from 1950. Uh, he's singing entirely in French. He is not speaking. He's singing it. And I got to say... It's got a pretty decent singing voice. Kind of brings it up to a higher pitch in his speaking voice, but it's all right. Unfortunately, I took Spanish in high school and college, not French, so I can't really give any comment on this one because I don't know what he's saying. 
Then we get to a 48-second track. It's the first of three tracks on the album that's less than one minute long. It's called Jenny Kissed Me. This is a poem by the English essayist Lee Hunt, written in 1838. There's a call and response here of some grand trumpets and some deep drums, sort of like the kind of music you would expect if someone was being announced at a ball. And suddenly, after about 15 seconds, the music just cuts out and is replaced by a very light guitar. No transition, a very abrupt, jarring transition there of the music. In this poem, Jenny jumps out of a chair and kisses him. He says some poetry stuff about time passing and getting older, and that's about it. Uh, So uh, let's move on to the next song. This one is called The Way I Cry Over You. This is 3 minutes and 29 seconds. Uses a lot of similes in this one to compare the way he cries over you. Some of the more interesting ones that I pulled out, like the man who loses his money. Yeah, yeah, well, that'll make us all cry. Like a beggar who roams over back streets and the shadows that follow behind. And that's a really good image there. I don't mean good in the sense that, you know, I'm glad this person is a beggar. Uh, I meant as far as, like, good writing. Um, you can... Picture somebody being lonely with the shadows falling behind them. Another one, like a river that flows without ending. Sort of interesting. You can tie the, you know, the river flowing without ending to someone that's just crying incessantly. Like the rain that comes without warning. Sort of thinking of someone that maybe just suddenly starts crying at something horrible that's happened out of nowhere. Uh, Again, uh, much like with the river, the water metaphor there from the crying. And the last one I call out, like an empty dream in your mind. That, that's definitely something that would uh, make me cry. You know, you have your dreams, and if it's just empty, you know, what have you got? An empty dream is it's a horrible dream, right? So next, let's go on to Unknown Citizen, a minute and 57 seconds. This is a poem written by W.H. Auden in 1939. Seems to be some kind of a eulogy, possibly meant to be a minister speaking at a funeral, doing a voice here that's sort of an old kind of stuffy British person. And the actress whose voice it sort of reminded me of actually was Catherine Hepburn. Some of the stuff talked about this person. Uh, He mentions the co-workers liked him. He liked to drink, read the paper every day. Had a phonograph, just to date this uh, album a little bit. A radio, a car, and a frigidaire. Was married with five children. And the song ends with him saying, was he free? Was he happy? The question is absurd. Had anything been wrong, we should certainly have heard. Gets into the question of what is happiness? What is success? You know, is someone who lives just this standard average life that we've just heard about, yet achieves no significant monetary or renowned achievement, can still consider themselves eminently successful, which, of course, is true. You know, the endless cliches, money can't buy you love, money can't buy you happiness, etc., etc. This person was happy. One other thing I want to mention about this song is when he says the question is absurd there in that last line, you can hear the saliva in his mouth. And I always find that fascinating when you're listening to something and you could just hear that saliva. I, I, you know... Just leave it in, you know? Why, why bother go back and recording it? Why, why worry about that sentence being there? Leave the saliva in. I like that. So the next song is It's When I Touch You, a minute 15 seconds. He wrote this one. He speaks very low in this, like a stage whisper. And this is definitely some more classic Peter Wingard seductive language. And I'm pretty sure that this song climaxes in a literal climax. He lowers the whisper, and he keeps repeating several times, when I, when I, and he does it breathlessly as the strings in the background are getting more and more intense. And then suddenly the strings stop and he slowly whispers, touch you, followed by a few much slower strings 
and it's almost like you've got that when I, the intense strings, touch you. It's basically how there would be a climax, and how things would then suddenly really settle down post-climax. So I, I think Peter's very happy at this point in the album. Now we get to the longest song on the album, 4 minutes and 44 seconds. It's called Hippie and the Skinhead. He wrote this one. It starts out with him talking. He's flipping through a newspaper, looking for a letter to the London Times. It's a letter written by two female skinheads who do not like hippies. They're just out for a good time. Uh, They're refuting the depiction of skinheads that was in a previous article written by two 15-year-old girls named Jane Skinner and Chris Webb. And then all of a sudden, uh, a country guitar or a banjo suddenly kicks in and he starts singing. He sings about someone named Billy the Queer, the sexy hippie, who meets a skinhead named Kenny. Kenny's only joy was knocking down a queer. I gotta be honest, I had a hard time following along the story of the song. Uh, It appears that Billy turns out to be a bald woman. Uh, I'm just, I'm gonna give up on that song. So next, a song called Try to Remember to Forget, Riviera Cowboy. He wrote this one. This is a minute and 44 seconds. He wonders why the woman he's speaking of, why her eyes are suspect of his intent, which was hardly news. I got to tell you, uh, Mr. Wingard, if whoever this woman is you've been talking to has been listening to this album, I think it's pretty obvious why her eyes are suspect of your intent. Uh, the song seems to be about a former liaison, and they just want to get it out of their memories, but they can't. And you know, who among us does not have those, right? And not even just liaisons, just anything from the past that just sucks and it just stays with you and you just you can't move on from it. It just sticks in your brain forever. Next up, a song called Jenny Kissed Me and It Was, with an ellipsis coming after the word was. This is only a minute 12. It starts off, he says, Jenny kissed me, Jenny kissed me, and it was, huh, and then the music kicks in. And now the music before, during, and after this one line of speaking in this entire track, by the way, it changes to several different genres of music. So, you know, think about something like a Bohemian Rhapsody or scenes from an Italian restaurant where you've got one song that keeps changing what kind of genre it is. This song's got classical, it's got some light guitar, it's got some military drums, it's got playing around with the recording, sort of like Revolution 9, you've got a fast acoustic guitar, you've got a gently pounding piano. I guess Jenny's a really good kisser. Now we've got the shortest track on this album. This is 38 seconds, it's called Whittacombe Fair, and this is a folk song from the 1800s. And the piano... Uh, actually continues from the lead-in from Jenny Kiss Me, and it was. So that track ended, and this one begins with the same uh, piano playing. Now, the voices here are women with one male voice that doesn't sound like him at all. I cannot pick out Peter's voice in this track. I'm not 100% convinced he's on this track, but I guess he has to be. All it says is, down to Whittacombe Fair we'll go, get on with the show, and watch the spinning wheel turn round, it don't make a sound. You know, the wheel could be several different things at a fair. It could be a Ferris wheel, could be a roulette wheel, could even be a merry-go-round, could even be a performer or a magician performing their act that involves a spinning wheel. Uh, It could even be someone with a literal spinning wheel, weaving something. You certainly uh, could see those at some old-timey types of fairs. Okay, next is called Neville Thumbcatch, a 4 minute and 27 second song. This is a song by the British group The Attack that he is covering here. And Neville Thumbcatch worked daily at the mill. Uh, in his spare time, he grew radishes and flowers. 
Now, Mrs. Thumbcatch, her only comfort was an alabaster gnome. I am not sure if that alabaster gnome was a collectible, was something that she crafted, or if it was something that she used by herself in Mr. Thumbcatch's absence, if you catch my drift. Then we get the chorus, which is just some women singing, and we come back to Peter and what he has to say. Mrs. Thumbcatch has decided to leave as soon as she is able with George the Milkman, and they will have kids, not Brussels sprouts. So going back to how about how Neville is spending all his time in the garden growing things and not paying attention to Mrs. Thumbcatch. He then says, Sometimes sadness comes, and then it's gone, as the Neville Thumbcatch show goes on and on. And then that, and on and on and on, repeats uh, very softly in the background as the chorus starts again. Uh, kind of catchy music th- in, in this one. Sort of an upbeat chorus and trumpets. It, it's, it's catchy. However, at the end, suddenly it turns into sort of a circus music motif or an oompa band or something for about 20 seconds. Then goes back to the main music from the song. Then goes back to that circus music oompa for 20 seconds or so. And then goes back to the main music again. Now, the gist of this song that I got was that it's a guy who's just so self-involved or maybe who lives with his head in the clouds. Doesn't notice his wife when she's there. Doesn't notice her after she's left. Poor Neville Thumbcatch. Next, we've got another song that Peter wrote. This is called Once Again, Flight Number 10. This is 3 minutes and 22 seconds. This one's got a singing and a talking mix. He says he's waiting for someone to come to the door once again. Turns out he's in an airport waiting for somebody's flight to arrive. He says, Flight Number 10 from where? I wonder who they're waiting for when he notices some other people waiting at the gate. And suddenly says, I wish that boy would stop picking his nose. Now, this track starts out with more than a minute of this wistful man awaiting a woman, and then this thought just randomly pops in. Just completely pulls you out of the song, but it works because that's how something like that would pull you out of a real moment. I can picture someone standing at an airport gate waiting for a woman to arrive, and they're thinking about this woman, and suddenly noticing some kid picking his nose, and it completely ruining the moment. Then he says uh, an, an interesting sentence here that I like this metaphor. He says, why is waiting so bare? And I like that. You know, when you're waiting for something, you're just there, waiting. You've got nothing. Whatever experience you're waiting for to start is empty or bare. Then Flight 404 is announced. However, that's not what she's on. Remember that part of the title of the song is Flight Number 10. Uh, He makes a comment about how a plane or a train doesn't arrive in the rain. Kind of lazy rhyme scheme there. But that alters his life once again. Waiting in vain for someone to come to the door never ever again. So clearly the woman he was waiting for was not on that plane. And he did not see that woman ever again. Next to last track on the album is called Pay No Attention. 59 seconds, our third track that's less than one minute long. He wrote this. Uh, The music in this seems to be a harp. He wants the listener to look into his eyes, but pay no heed of lips that do beguile. Considering the overall theme of this album, considering the rape song previously, it's probably best to just move on from this one based on that paying no heed of his lips that do beguile. And frankly, he doesn't say much else in this song anyway. And finally, we end it with a song called April. Two minutes and one seconds. He wrote this one too. Mostly the music... When you listen to this, it starts out with what you would probably refer to as Renfair music, but then some modern funky music kind of kicks in. He says, think not, I own my shame, it is yours, my lady. 
we will share those and them who dare to say my singing was meant to hurt. Now, I find this line to be very meta, almost like he's saying, I know that this album's going to be interestingly received, and I don't care. If you were hurt by it, well, that's just too bad. This is this. is I'm putting myself out here. This is my music. Now, the last words on the album are, Wise April, more than less among the love, and all the rest, a restless wonder of my soul. And then the music switches back to the Ren Faire music. I got to tell you, I found this to be, considering this is the last song, and those are the last words he says on the album, I sort of considered it to be an anticlimactic ending to the album. It was such a wacky album. This song really wasn't that wacky. And yes, I did mean that pun that I considered the ending to the album anticlimactic. So that brings us to the end. Obviously, Peter was going for something. Uh, I'm not really sure what. uh, But again, there are contemporary and retrospective reviews online that can help you with that. At the very least, if you do like novelty albums, it definitely is a keeper. About the album, Peter Wingard said, it sold out next to no time, but RCA point blankly refused to press any more. I was fuming as I'd been given a free album contract with the company, promised to release one LP every 12 months. The excuse was that production was being moved. They told me that everything would have to go on the back burner, but I just believe they got cold feet. Gotta be honest with you, Peter, I'm, I'm not shocked and I kind of don't blame that they got cold feet to not honor the other two albums on that record deal. As much as this is an incredibly insanely enjoyable listen, I don't know how commercially viable it was. So with that, a reminder that I do still check the Facebook group, the Flash Gordon Minute Listener's Vortex, our Twitter page, and even the email address, so always feel free to contact us. And remember, if you are completely baffled by a 1970s mostly spoken word album by the actor who performed one of the greatest villains in sci-fi history, don't worry, Flash will save every one of us. Attention listeners, follow us on Twitter on Flash Gordon Pod. Join the conversation on Facebook in the Flash Gordon Listener's Vortex. Billy was a queer, pilly sexy hippie. He wore gear, frilly hairy zippy. Mohair in the winter, less hair in the summer. His mac was black, scarf immaculate, tied loosely, not interfered with promiscuity. Beads that went all the way to eternity, especially on his trips around 3.30, did Billy the queer, pilly sexy hippie. Then one night he went to troll the dilly to spend a penny and met a skinhead Kenny. Kenny was one too many, a skinhead who hated plenty. But Billy loved his puritanical gear, his boots, his braces, his hair and something else which was quite rare. Kenny was a doer, pimply silly drear, whose only joy was knocking down a queer. 
So the moment his beetle-less brows rose in frenzy, Billy gulped, zipped up, and looked less trendy. The crew cut Ken and all his men stomped out in rounded style. Their boots as small as size being ten, they had to walk in Indian file. Billy ran up the stairs to the street and suddenly found he was surrounded by feet. What was night became the day that lovely Ken didn't want to play. Instead he looked like some bad trip, not at all like any hopeful kip. Which made poor Billy realize that peanuts just don't vitalize. Thud, thud, socky. Thud, thud, thud again with the magnificent ten. A thing in the face. Grab hair quickly. Slip, slip, slip. will always prickly. Flat. Choke, just like mine. What? Oh, poor Billy. No more hat size nine. But stop. Halt. Go back. Rerun reel. What's that between Ken's clammy hand? A load of hay? Familiar material? A wig. Detached from yellow band? No, no. I must be Ken. Underneath this golden mass is a head as bare... As bare as my ass. And what's this now? Bearer still, peeping out in another thrill from torn blouse and button spill. A pair. A pair of skinnies. Cool, what a pair. She's a bird. She's a bird. A bird. So Ken became a less dour, silly, pimply, drear, cause Billy certainly was no pilly, sexy, hippie, queer,